For those of you I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Alex Schroeder. I serve on staff overseeing our discipleship ministries. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn to Job chapter 32. Job chapter 32. A few weeks ago, we discussed the life of William Cooper. We considered him as an example of how hope and despair can be mingled together in the life of a Christian. Well, the discussion we had about Cooper was very brief. And in that time, I had to overlook a really significant piece of his life, in particular, his friendship with his pastor, John Newton. Cooper and Newton met in 1765 in the city of Unwin. And within two years, Cooper, who so loved his dear friend, decided to move cities so that Newton could be his pastor. Cooper said this of Newton, a more sincere and more affectionate friend no man ever had. And their friendship even lasted the test of time when Newton moved away and they continued their friendship on via letters to one another. Well, in the midst of their friendship, Newton, Cooper's pastor, had an idea. And he went to Cooper and said that they should write hymns together. He saw this as a great way to use Cooper's gifting of lyrics and poetry, and also as a way to encourage him in his suffering and grief. And so together they published uh, around 300 hymns that today we know as the Olney hymns because it was published in the city of Olney. Cooper wrote about 68, and Newton wrote 208 hymns. I want to draw your attention, though, to one potentially new hymn that Newton wrote I say new because perhaps it'd be new to you. This hymn is a biographical account of Newton's own life where he asked the Lord to grow him. This is the first verse. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and more earnestly seek his face. Well, that's a great prayer. That we as sons of God would more earnestly know his salvation for us, that we would seek after him, and we can imagine the Lord would be quick to answer a prayer like that. In the second and third verses, Newton assumes that the Lord would take him down an easy path, that the Lord would, by his immense power, subdue and remove all of Newton's sins and take them away, giving him peace and godliness. But in the fourth verse, Newton tells us what really happened. Newton says this, Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. God, in answer to Newton's prayer, grew his own awareness of his personal sin and brought deep conviction upon him. The route of growth for Newton was unexpected, it was longer than he thought it would be. It was more difficult than he thought it would be. And it left him humbled. And at times, the good, wise, loving path that God has for his saints feels more meandering than direct. It's more miserable than delightful. And we see that in the life of the servant Job. This path for Job is not the path we would have thought if we just read those first few verses in chapter 1. This man of great prosperity is led to an ash heap, a 
city dump. Unfathomable, inexplicable suffering. And the only answers we've heard so far have been from his forcefully foolish friends. And they keep saying, Job, this is all your fault. You've sinned sometime, and this is deserved. Well, this morning, in Job 32 to 37, we're going to hear a different answer. And it's from a surprising source. This answer isn't the definitive answer or the final answer, but it is a better answer. In Job 32, we meet a new, mysterious character named Elihu. And he seems really important. Unlike the other friends, Elihu has a Jewish name and a Jewish heritage, a Hebrew name, Elihu, which means, my God is Yahweh. He's also allowed to speak for four uninterrupted speeches, making him the only person in the book that speaks less, or he, is the, he speaks more than anyone else in the book except Job. He is a significant figure, and yet we've never heard about him. When the friends are introduced in chapter 2, nothing is said about Elihu. And through the course of speeches that bounce back and forth between chapter 4 to 31, we hear nothing of a bystander listening in. And while he's been quietly on the sidelines, we can't ignore these speeches. They play a pivotal role in both anticipating God's speech to come and answering Job. This morning, I want to consider two big points, and we will have a couple subpoints along the way about this new character, Elihu. First, let's consider what is Elihu like? He's been quiet for quite some time, but what prompts him to speak now? Well, let's read this introduction about him in Job 32, verses 1 to 5. These words will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Job chapter 32, verse 1. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. The friends have given up. Their wisdom has run out. And they're unable to prove Job wrong because Job is righteous in his own eyes. What does this phrase mean? We should be careful here. When we hear a phrase like righteous in his own eyes, we can be quick to think of some kind of pharisaical legalism, some self-righteousness of earning their way to God. I wouldn't suggest that's the best way to interpret this phrase. Perhaps a better way to put it is how it's put in verse 2. Job is described as justifying himself rather than God. In the passage immediately before this that Chase covered for us last week, we see that Job is presenting his last defense in a court case in chapters 29 to 31. Job doesn't suggest that he's a sinless man, but that he hasn't sinned in a way that deserves this sort of treatment. Job is pushing for a verdict between him and God, and Job can only envision two outcomes. Either that God will admit that he has done wrong to Job, 
and God will repent. Or that God would admit to Job, I am unjust. But Job never expects that he could be wrong, that he would be misunderstanding what's happening. And in this way, Job is right in his own eyes. He thinks in this court case, God is the one who has done wrong, and Job has no misunderstanding. And this whole situation has an effect on Elihu. Verses 2 to 5 say four times that Elihu burns with anger. So our first sub-point, what is Elihu like? He's angry. He's angry at Job. How can a man charge God with wrongdoing? But that's not the only object of his anger. He's also angry at these three friends. We see that in verse 3. The friends were right to defend God's justice, but they were incompetent to prove Job wrong. And Elihu is angry at their failure. What are we to make of this anger? Anger is that inner response of the heart that screams, this isn't right. And our hearts can scream that at a ton of different situations. Anger is often, dare I say, even almost always, with very few exceptions, not a sinful response. Anger is always coming from this place of sin in us. There are so many situations where our sinful hearts scream out, that isn't right. Even though the situation that we're screaming it out at isn't wrong, it's just not the way we want it to be. And yet we live in a world that is filled with much wrong. We are sandwiched between the fall and Christ's return, and that means that there are many moments that will happen where our hearts could scream out, this isn't right, and we would be right. We would rightly assess that this world is wrong. And that sort of anger, that rightly judged, rightly measured, rightly directed anger is called righteous anger. It's an anger that rightly discerns wrong. It's not excessive or wild in its expression, and it's rightly directed. It sees God as the one to vindicate, and it sees God as the ultimate one defamed by wrong in this world. So we have to understand that in the Bible, there's a real category of righteous anger. But just as a caution to you, I would encourage you to be really self-suspicious when anger rises up in your heart. The worst thing we could do is become aware of a category like righteous anger and abuse that category to justify our anger. Well, Elihu seems to be fueled by a righteous anger. He's listened to the debates. He's heard the wrong that Job has expressed, judging God as a criminal. He's seen the failure of the friends to correct Job's misunderstandings. And this anger prompts him to speak, which leads to our next point. Elihu is ambitious. He's angry and he's ambitious. Elihu, in these introductory verses, is presented to us as a young man. And the narrator says this of him, in chapter 32, verse 4. And then Elihu says this much about himself in chapters 32, 6 to 10. He waits for the aged to speak. But then as he speaks, he says that it's not the aged, the elderly, that necessarily are the ones that have wisdom. Wisdom comes from God's spirit. He held his tongue 
And now he ambitiously speaks to correct, to challenge, and to clarify the truth that the friends couldn't get right. Read with me in Job chapter 32, verse 11 to 14. Elihu says this, Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. Elihu tells the friends, you've given it your best shot and you've failed. Job wasn't addressing me, but it's my turn to speak, and I will give him better words than you have. See that in 32.14. I will not answer him with your speeches. Elihu states that he's got something new to say. And this leads us to our next point. Elihu's angry, he's ambitious, and he's ambiguous. Ambiguous. In other words, Elihu can be really difficult to interpret. The reason chapter 32 verse 14 brings this up is that many commentators hold various opinions on whether or not Elihu actually succeeds in what he claims in 32.14. Some suggest Elihu brings nothing new to the table, and he is just repackaging all that the friends have said. Those commentators would say that he's full of himself. He shoots high and falls way short. Yet others point to some new things Elihu brings up, and they say, no, look, he has some similarities, but he brings way new information. And this isn't the only aspect of Elihu that has commentators polarized. Some suggest his anger is actually a sign of his immaturity. I hope you've seen that I've defended, I think it's a good aspect of Elihu. Some look at his Hebrew name and interpret it negatively. Some interpret it positively. Some see his long-windedness as him being full of himself and pompous. Others see it as it's him declaring a word from the Lord. Elihu quotes Job. Some see him misquoting Job. Some see that he's very faithful to Job's speech. Elihu at times speaks very boldly and confidently. Some think this is a sign of his arrogance. Others see it as, no, he's telling the truth. And the list goes on and on. So let's be honest. There is some difficulty here in interpreting Elihu. It's true in small phrases, and it's true in the macro level of just asking, what in the world is Elihu doing here? There's a long time that I debated titling this sermon, Who Knew? Because he seems to know, and yet we aren't quite sure what he's doing. It gets even more difficult because we have no external frame of reference to judge Elihu by. The friends, well, at least Job responds to them. So we know when he's disagreeing or being encouraged or helped, or we can see where they're wrong. Even at the end of the book, God will address both the speeches of the friends and Job. So we have that commentary to help us understand them. But Elihu gets no response from Job, no response from God. And some even think that's a sign of good. Others think that's a sign of bad. There's ambiguity here. But I don't say that he's ambiguous and mean that he's completely unintelligible. And I hope you don't think that studying Elihu is worthless because I use this word ambiguous. Instead, this is an encouragement to you to remember that some parts of Scripture are more difficult than others. Yet all of Scripture 
Even the ones that are more simple require that we come to it carefully, thoughtfully, slowly, and with humility. This is how we always come to God's word. And God has given us his word, and it is knowable. His word teaches us all that we need for salvation and for living. But it always requires careful sifting. And so let Elihu, in the difficulty that he can be, be a reminder to you to be a student of God's word. And if you need help with that, seek out help. Come speak to one of our pastors. Go get connected with one of our ministries that will help you grow through reading the Bible with someone else. Or better yet, get excited for equipping classes that are coming on the other side of our renovation, where we're hoping to better resource you to be a student of God's word. Well, we certainly have to sift Elihu because not everything about him is all good and not everything's bad. He's much more of a mixed bag. And there are treasures here. We just have to do a little bit harder work to find them. Let's consider our second major point about Elihu. What does Elihu do? What does Elihu do? We'll have two subpoints here. First, he anticipates God. Elihu anticipates God. Whether you know this or not, God's speech is coming in the book of Job in chapter 38. And Elihu prepares the way for us, the reader. Here's one subtle way that I think Elihu does this. It's actually through that ambiguity, that difficulty. One commentator of the book of Job says that the book of Job seems almost intentionally designed to tire and frustrate the reader. And Elihu is certainly the best at it. At the end of Job 31... We've heard Job's final defense, and we are ready for God to speak. We're ready for him to show up. But instead of that, we get ambiguous Elihu with four more speeches, six more chapters, 159 more verses. And even though he may be the best wisdom that the world has to offer, the best Hebrew wisdom there is, we've got to sift through it. In every verse, every statement, we're asking, is this good? Is this bad? Is this true? Is this right? Is this helpful? And so I can't tell you how many times over the last six months in studying Elihu, particularly in the last three weeks, thinking very directly about this, I've just lamented to people that I'm talking to about this. I cannot wait for God to speak. And I think it's a purpose of Elihu's ambiguity to prepare us for wanting God. It's like a liturgy almost to train us to love God's words and to reject the words of man. There's one other way that Elihu anticipates God. Read with me in Job 36, beginning in verse 22, and we'll end in verse 33. Elihu says this to Job, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist and rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? 
Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges people. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. It's crashing, declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. The second way that Elihu anticipates God is that he shifts the conversation. He shifts it away from questions of God's justice to looking at God's sovereignty and his transcendence. Notice the words he uses in 36, 24. Remember to extol his work. He says it again in 37, verse 14. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Elihu points Job's attention to the storm with words like thunder, lightning, clouds, rain, mist, and dew. Thus far, the friends and Job have been contemplating God's works, in particular in the life of Job, but they've not been contemplating God's work all around them in creation. They have been searching and asking, but Elihu tells them to look somewhere else and to ask different questions. Chapter 36, 29. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds? In other words, Job, you want to know if God is right to do this, but do you understand how simple everyday things in your life, like storms, work? The overall purpose, it seems, is to shift Job's perspective. Elihu says that the purposes of God are mysterious and that this system that Job and the friends have held to, that three-legged stool, it just assumes too much knowledge. The world's far more mysterious. And even the world around us, through mere observation, teaches us that. Elihu's preparing Job for what God will come and say by pointing him away from questions of justice but to questions of God's sovereignty. Our final point this morning is that Elihu answers Job. He anticipates God and he answers Job. Elihu, we could call him the great answerer. He's said Job needs an answer. The friends haven't answered. He shows up to answer. Every one of his four speeches begins by saying, and Elihu answered. And there's a lot in these speeches that Elihu says, but I want to cover the point that seems to be the new thing that he brings. You might remember the friends have been saying that suffering is always punishment. Job, you've sinned. This is punishment to you. But Elihu brings a different perspective. He doesn't claim that Job suffered because of his sin, but he tells Job that he is sinning because of his suffering. Elihu is less concerned about what's caused Job's suffering than what Job is going to get out of the suffering. Elihu says to us that suffering is not punishment, but it's purification. It's not retribution from God, but it's the refining fire that God uses in his people's lives. Read with me Job 36, verses 5 to 15. Behold, God is mighty, and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. 
He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. In verse 7, Elihu introduces a hypothetical righteous character. And then in verse 8, he says that that righteous character is bound in chains and caught in cords of affliction. Already, he is saying something new. The friends would not admit that the righteous could be bound with affliction. But Elihu says, this is possible, that the righteous might suffer. And yet he gives us God's purpose behind it. In verse 9, he says, God declares to the righteous in the midst of their afflictions that they're transgressing, that they're behaving arrogantly. In verse 10, he says that God opens their ears to this instruction and commands that they would return from their iniquity. Elihu says that in the midst of suffering, God is instructing. So while God has not yet answered Job, that doesn't mean that God has been silent. God is speaking through the midst of this suffering. Elihu says a similar thought in Job 33. And there he says that God does this through suffering, the man does not perceive it. It's a small voice, a whisper of clarity that can be misunderstood and misheard. But God speaks to reveal pride and arrogance in pain. C.S. Lewis said something similarly. In his book, The Problem of Pain, he says, every man knows that something's wrong when he is being hurt. Pain insists upon being attended to. We know that to be true. When you wake up and there's a weird pain in your knee and it lingers, it'd be wise to get it checked out. Pain clues us into that there's a problem. So C.S. Lewis concludes this, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, you may be thinking, I thought you said it was a subtle whisper, and C.S. Lewis just said it's a loud megaphone. Well, it certainly draws our attention when pain comes. But that doesn't mean the voice is always super clear as to what it's trying to teach us. And Elihu says that too. Elihu makes so clear that some reject the communication. In verse 11 and 12, he presents two different outcomes. In 11, he says, some listen. And then in verse 12, he says, some don't listen. Suffering may be communicating, but that doesn't mean that all of us are listening. But God can use pain and suffering to make us more aware of our deepest, uncovered sins. 
And perhaps that's your experience as a Christian. As you reflect on your life, perhaps in the midst of, the, of turmoil, you were made more aware of sin that was unclear to you before. Praise God for helping us see with clear eyes who we are. Elihu presents two outcomes. We've considered them in verses 11 and 12, but he repeats them again in verses 13 to 15. And he says that the outcomes are either listen and repent or cherish anger. Cherish anger. Presumably this is anger at the one inflicting the suffering. It's to be in the midst of suffering and hold fast to anger at God. This is the crux of Elihu's teaching to Job. Job, you're not here because you sinned, but now that you are here, you are in a place where you have a choice to hold to your anger and your accusations or to trust. So he presents a new purpose. One thing that is clear in this choice that Elihu is giving is that no amount of suffering ever gives us an excuse to sin. There are hard times, hard seasons, very long times of hard seasons, and yet we are not allowed off the hook. We are still accountable to God. And Elihu says that Job should choose. In verse 21, he says, you have chosen iniquity, Job, rather than affliction. He says, don't turn towards sin, Job. Turn to the affliction. And this is such a bizarre idea that Job should choose affliction? Why? Why would we choose pain and suffering? Because there's hope. Verse 15. Elihu says in verse 15, He, God, delivers the afflicted by their afflictions. Not from affliction. Not through affliction, not in spite of afflictions, but by affliction. God, in his mysterious, wise purposes, uses affliction, pain, and suffering in our lives to, make, to help us listen, to help us see, to help us grow. This is sometimes the way that God works in the lives of his most faithful servants. God uses the most painful times to make us into something that we could not be otherwise. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. That psalmist, just a few verses later, even puts it a different way. He says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was good. Didn't always feel good. But in the end, the Lord can work it for good. Martin Luther, the reformer, even said that we need three things to be good theologians. He, forgive me for them being in Latin, but he said we need meditatio, oratio, and tentatio. Do you know what those are in English? He said we need meditation, prayer, I think we can agree with those two. And the third one, trial, suffering, difficulty. The sufferings of this life are not punishment, yet they can be purification. 
but we have a choice. You and your suffering have a choice. As Glenda read for us this morning from James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then comes a command. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Did you hear the command? Let steadfastness have its full effect. You have a part to play in the midst of suffering. Suffering isn't some magical growth serum that just works, but it can be the catalyst that puts you on a trajectory of spiritual growth that you've never had before. Tim Keller, pastor for a long time in New York City, who recently went to be with the Lord, put it this way. In the darkness, you have a choice that's not really there in better times. We can choose to serve God just because he is God. In the darkest moments, when we feel we are getting absolutely nothing out of God or out of our relationship to him. But what if then, when it doesn't seem to be paying or benefiting you at all, you continue to obey, to pray to, to seek God, as well as your other duties to love others. If we do that, then we are finally learning to love God for himself and not for the benefits he gives. When the darkness lifts or lessens, we'll find that our dependence on other things beside God for our happiness has shrunk and that we have a new strength and a new contentment in God himself We'll also have a new fortitude, an unflappability, a poise, and a peace in the face of difficulty. So in suffering, we turn to Christ. We let go of this world. We feast on the word. We plead in prayer. And we draw near to God's people. We don't let our tears be wasted. Now all of this doesn't minimize the pain, the heartache, or the loss. But it does help us to see perhaps the hidden mystery of God that are behind the suffering. Perhaps it's one silver lining, not that makes it all better or takes, make, removes all of the pain, but it's one outcome that by faith we can trust that God is working. The whole book of Job is centered around God vindicating himself before Satan. And yet, in Job's life, God can be accomplishing more than just that one thing. The Job that we find at the end is different than the Job that we saw at the beginning. And the same is true in our lives. We may never know all of the purposes or the exact reasons why something happened to us. And we will never, or perhaps we'll never, see the afflictions that we're facing removed. That's not what Elihu's promising. That's not what the Bible promises to suffering Christians. But the deliverance that God offers is a deliverance from the power of sin. It's a deliverance that results in our growth into godliness. That's a byproduct. There was one saint that's depicted this so well for me. I met him in Louisville. Uh, I miss him. It'd be great to see him again. Uh, he's still with us, but I know one day we'll all get to meet him. Uh, his name was Tom, and Tom had debilitating health issues. And he was very successful in life in some ways, 
There's some Job similarities there. And one time he told me not to pray for his healing, but to pray for his personal holiness. He said that if the sufferings of today aren't worth comparing to the glories to come, then he shouldn't focus his attention on removing the sufferings, but preparing for the glory. And so he said, pray that I be holy. Sometimes we can't even begin to start to think that way until the Lord gets us in that fire of affliction. And yet we see the value of godliness more than we ever could. So God delivers his saints, not from afflictions, but by them. Surgeons need to make cuts. Remodeling a home starts with demolition. Sculpting requires the use of a hammer. And growing a plant requires pruning. And so I wonder, brothers and sisters, if you look back on your life and you know that to be true, that you reflect and you see that your greatest seasons of growth have come through the hardest seasons of suffering. The pain you had turned to prayer. The tears you cried turned to trust. The loss you felt turned to greater love for God. Your mourning turned to meditation and your grief turned to godliness. Praise God that by his divine wisdom and his work in our life, our hardest moments aren't wasted. And if we're suffering now, we shouldn't always expect to see the evidence of that outcome yet. We, we will wait. Sometimes we may never see the outcomes in this life, but we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. The Lord will use this to refine, to purify us. And one day, the Lord will wipe away every tear. Our God is loving, he's powerful, and he's wise. And he's at work. Perhaps you're joining us this morning and you're not a Christian. And you've wondered, why have these bad things happened to me? Those are good questions. Unfortunately, I can't answer every one of those reasons of why those things have happened. But perhaps the Lord is doing it so that you would listen. That you would become aware of your sin for the first time. Your pride, your arrogance before him. And what a mercy it would be that the Lord might inflict momentary pain so that you would have eternal life. And if that's you this morning, you're faced with a choice. Will you cherish anger, plug your ears, or will you listen? Don't ignore the call. Would you turn toward God? God delivers the afflicted by affliction. And he's delivered us by the affliction of his son. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus, the Christ, would be afflicted. He would be despised by those around him in the world. He'd be rejected by his people. He'd be so used to suffering, he could be called a man of sorrows. He would be well acquainted with grieving. The greatest of which is that he would bear sins and transgressions and receive the punishment for them. Not his own sins, not his own transgressions, but ours, the sins of his people. Isaiah 53 doesn't just say he'd be afflicted 
and sad and grieved, but that he would be pierced, that he would be grieved to the point of dying. It says this, that out of the anguish of his soul, he would be in anguish as he hung on a cross bearing the sins of many. But yet his anguish leads to righteousness. Through his suffering, sinners and sufferers can be made right with God. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He will make many to be accounted righteous. So if you're wondering why have these bad things happened, listen. Listen to the call that you have sinned against God and God has made a way to forgive you, to deliver you from sin through the affliction of his son. This is your hope. This is your greatest hope in the midst of suffering. We began this morning considering John Newton's hymn. The title of it is, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. When he first asked for growth, the Lord did not take him down an easy path. Instead, he took him a difficult direction, the inner afflictions that lead to his humbling. Well, Newton concludes the hymn with two final verses that are imagining this conversation with God that Newton would have, where he asked God, what is going on? Why did it happen like this? Perhaps you've wanted that conversation too. Here's what Newton imagines. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue this worm to death? This is the way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all in me. This is how the Lord works. He uses suffering to draw us to himself. He uses the darkest moments to make us something that we would not be otherwise. Affliction is not just punishment. It's purification. It's refinement. And all of this comes from God's heart filled with love for his children. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your great wisdom and your great love and your great power. Even in our darkest moments, you see light and you work wisely. Help us to trust and believe. Lord, your word says that if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask for it and you will give it. Father, grant it to us. We need it so desperately. Particularly, Lord, help us to have wisdom to see your hand at work in our lives, even when we're unsure of what your purposes may be. Lord, help us to trust you in Christ's name. Amen.